Hey, and welcome to the Seats to Streets podcast, a conversation centered around adding a voice and practical tools through your earbuds on the subject of missions in the established church. Many pastors and pastoral staff want to do more in the area of local and global missions, but feel overwhelmed at where to start and how. Listen in and learn key practices and new perspectives from missionaries and ministers working to move people from Sunday morning seats to local and global streets. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Seats to Streets podcast. I'm your host, J.R. Horn, and I have an extra special guest on today that we're going to talk all things coffee, we're going to talk about missionary life, and we're going to talk about a brand new book for churches, for believers, about what it is to put your faith into action. And with me today across the mic today, because we're actually doing some mobile podcasting, not across the lens, is a really good friend of mine that goes by the name Elliot Branch. So, Elliot, how are you, my friend? Doing wonderful. Thank you. All right. So, we know you go by the name Elliot Branch, but as far as our podcast listeners know, that's your name. Tell us a bit about some of the why you would go by the name Elliot Branch, because that's not your true name, right? <laughs> that's correct. It's my pen name. Pen name. Why would why would someone need a pen name? <laughs> well, I uh, just wrote a book, as you mentioned, and um, it is about our ministry work in Southeast Asia. Uh, more specifically in the country of Laos. And because Laos is a communist country and, you know, open missionary work or evangelism, things like that are not uh, always allowed or there's they're restricted, uh, then we have to be careful about our, you know, revealing our identities or revealing what we're doing. So mm-hmm. it's kind of one or the other. So since we're going to be talking about <laughs> what some of the things that we've been doing that God's been doing, then it's best just to keep it with uh, Elliot Branch yeah. <laughs> name. And, and the podcast listeners will know because we've talked to several um, team expansion workers about what it is to uh, work in a sensitive country and things like that. So they understand. I've even had to come on the podcast and say, hey, please excuse some of the audio drops because I had to edit out <laughs> yeah. some of the country names because we just get to talking and we forget, ah, this is going on the internet. We can't say that. So <laughs> they fully understand the the need for anonymity and things like that. But Give us a little bit of a background. What 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 uh, you mentioned? You mentioned Laos. You mentioned work that's going on there. But give us a little bit of background about your calling into ministry. Maybe how yeah. you got to Laos and how long you were there. Yeah, sure. Well, I could go back uh, a long, long ways if you like, and bore you with a lot of stories. I'll try to <laughs> keep you from doing that. Um, but uh, I remember when I grew up, I went to a small Lutheran church, actually, out in the country. And the first time I ever heard the word missionary was from the pastor of that church leading the adult uh, Sunday school class that I joined as a teenager. Mm. And he mentioned something about our missionaries in Russia. And it was the first time that I can remember ever hearing that term. And I thought it had to be the most disgusting thing that a person could be. <laughs> because in my mind at the time... Um, to be religious was bad enough, but then to go to another country and try to make other people religious, right. that's like, oh my, that's had to have been the worst thing a person could possibly be. That was my feeling <laughs> right. of being a missionary. And that all changed when I was in college and got involved with the campus ministry and came to know the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd been searching about whether God exists, whether if he did, if he knew I was here, and if he did know I was here, if he gave a rip or not. Mm-hmm. And and when I discovered who Jesus was and how he not only sees me, but he loves me and died for me and forgives me of my sins. And that transformation from the forgiveness of sins through Christ really changed everything. It changed mm-hmm. my perspective on, on the world, on my life, the meaning of life, and then on others too. And once I experienced that transformation, I wanted other people to experience that too. And so really, uh, 
you can't I can't really talk about my calling or my interest in missions without talking about my own, you know, transformation mm-hmm. and coming to Christ experience because it's all rooted in that. And that's really what drives missions, mm-hmm. you know, is the idea that um, you know, God died Jesus died for us and he offers forgiveness to everyone who will turn to him. And now it's a matter of uh, who doesn't know about that yet? Who right. doesn't know about that opportunity yet? So when I was in college, I got involved with the campus ministry, and uh, they would always take uh, short-term mission trips, you know, over spring break in the summertime to right. go to places like Mexico and Haiti and Honduras. And, and I started joining on those trips, and it was the first time that I really started to see that, wait a second, there's people outside of my home country mm-hmm. that, um, you know, need to know Jesus too. And the whole cross-cultural side of things really started to appeal to me. Maybe God wants me to to do something in a different culture. Mm. And I strangely felt more bold <laughs> um, when it came to matters of faith, uh, you know, thinking about doing that cross-culturally than at home even. And so I started, you know, looking into what is missions and you know, I didn't know. Back then, we didn't have the internet. We didn't right. have the web. So right. we couldn't just Google how to become a missionary. <laughs> and so it took a while to kind of start talking to people, figure out how does one become a missionary. Right. And in that process, somebody mentioned to me a term that I'd never heard before, and that term was unreached people groups. Hmm. And when I heard that term and understood what it meant, that there's people groups or, or tribes or ethnicities around the world that have never once heard the name of Jesus, or if they have, they've not heard enough of about Christianity or the gospel in order to become Christians. That's when I was, I was really on right. board with that. Yeah. Immediately. I was like, yeah, that's where I feel like God's leading me to go is wow. to unreach people groups. And so it was from that, that spurred on this, this, not just a desire, but a, a like, I, I must do this. I have to do this. And, and, from there, I, I know you've ended up in in Laos. What, so from that moment of understanding and hearing unreached people groups, where did where did Laos come into the picture at? You know, that's a great question. The funny thing is, as as I was trying to figure out what is a missionary, how do you become a missionary, I started reading missionary biographies. Right. And I had picked up um, Shadow of the Almighty by Elizabeth Elliot. that tells the story of Jim Elliot and his friends who were – uh, killed by this unreached tribe of Indians in the Amazon jungle in Ecuador back in 1956. And that story in particular, as well as others, really motivated me. And, um, and you know, I worked in, on campus in the audiovisuals department. Mm-hmm. And one day I was uh, picking up a, an old VCR and TV unit <laughs> on a cart, you know, from a classroom. And it was an anthropology class. And they, were, they had a video about a tribe in the jungles, the Amazon jungles of Peru, mm. that was much like the tribe that, that killed right. Elliot and his gangs. And, um, and I was... I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that there was a, still 30 years later, a tribe still like that. And so I worked for a long time having had studied Spanish on, on the possibility of going to Peru to reach that tribe. Oh, wow. And so um, I did an internship in Panama in 1995, kind mm. of thinking that that's going to help me in a, in a Latin, um, Latin American context to get ready to go to Peru. Um, and then I went to seminary and took the equivalent of the perspectives course. Mm-hmm. And during that, I kind of learned a little bit better the landscape of, of world missions and world evangelization and where the job has, is being done and where there's more black holes, so to speak. And uh, what at the time was very popular, um, popularly called the 1040 window. Okay. And so I felt like God was saying, uh, I don't want you to go to Latin America. I want you to go over somewhere in the east 
And I really resisted that. Mm. I, I, because I'd invested in right. language to speak learning, Spanish. Uh, yeah. And I was like, I don't know anybody who speaks Spanish over in Asia. <laughs> and besides, they speak tonal languages over there. There's no way I could learn a tonal language. Right. And I remember specifically in prayer with God saying once that, um, or God said to me, is this about where you want to go or where I'm leading you to go? Uh-huh. And I remember thinking, well, God, if you put it that way, yeah, right. <laughs> I know the right answer here. Yeah, do I, even do if I, I have like a response? <laughs> That's right. And so uh, because of that prayer, I gave that up in my heart to go to Peru or Latin America, anywhere, and to go somewhere completely new that mm. I was totally unprepared for. And God gave me a piece about that. But I still didn't know where to go. Right. And so I was looking at, you know, where's the most unreached country in the world? And I was started looking into, you know, all the stats of right. unreached people groups, uh, languages, uh, how many uh, missionaries are trying to reach those groups and trying to balance all those out to figure out where was the country or the place that had the most need and the fewest resources to meet that need. Mm. And what I discovered was that there's quite a few countries yeah, in the right. world yeah. like that. And usually they were, you know, Muslim or communist right. or at war or something. Right. And, um, but uh, as I was looking through these places that kind of fit that bill, I saw the country of Laos on the list and that rang a bell. It rang a bell because years before when I was in college, I had taken a geography course, and my professor, he, he gave us all, you know, uh, term paper projects right. and randomly assigned different countries in the world to all the students in the class and randomly assigned me the country of Laos. Huh. And so I had no clue, you know, right. when I did that report that one day I'd end up you know, going to live there, learning the language and marrying somebody from there. Wow. <laughs> I had no idea. And uh, but that you know, put that seed in my mind so that later on when I was looking at unreached places in the world and that kind of popped up on the radar, uh, it, it kind of caught my eye and drew my interest. And so I started researching Laos more and more. And the more uh, I read about it, the more it appealed to me personally, but I still didn't know if that's where God wanted me to go. Um, and uh, long story short, I took a trip there in 1997 and kind of exploratory tri- trip. And uh, when I was there for that summer. That's when I really felt like, okay, this is definitely where the Lord wants me to be. Wow. And from that trip in 1997, how, how long did you, were you in country? Yeah, I uh, spent the summer 97 there, summer 99 and summer of 2000. I led teams there and then moved there in 2001, moved there full time less than two months after September 11th. Oh, wow. And so was there, um, you know, full time for 15 years, basically. And so in, in that 15 years, I know, I know you and I have had, you know, off the mic conversations, but that's, you've got a prolific story of what ministry looks like. And one of the reasons why I like to have individuals on the podcast that have uh, missions background or missionaries background is because I want to continue to reshape and repicture in, in churches, uh, minds and ministers eyes, what it is to be a missionary. Right, and so I know you have some of this that is still happening in your work today. There right, of right. truly going into tribal communities and sitting on dirt floors and, and and teaching about Jesus, but you've also you've also had a really unique way of advancing the gospel and spreading the gospel to ears that have never heard about Jesus through through coffee. Tell us how coffee came up in those fifteen years there. Sure, yeah. So when I was in Laos, I originally was invited to join an agriculture, agricultural company there that 
planted soybeans, mm. and they would give soybeans to farmers, purchase the crop back from them, and then process the soybeans into animal feed. And they would sell the animal feed locally. And uh, I got connected with them because my target unreached people group called the Mian, um, it just so happened to be uh, the biggest customers of the animal feed business were chicken farmers, and the chickens, chicken farmers were mean people. Oh. And so that's how I got connected with them and actually did chickens for a while. Really? Was, I didn't yeah. know you did chickens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had <laughs> big layer hen barns and stuff and, and raised out, uh, raised out uh, layer hens from chicks and then sold them to these farmers, helped set up a couple new mean chicken farms as well. Um, now, did you have any sort of farming animal background? Not, not really. I mean, I grew up out in the country and I worked on a dairy farm before, but no, no, I, my undergrad degree is actually in physics, but, um, which should have prepared you correctly to raise chicken. So I don't see <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's interesting because, uh, when I was preparing to go do that, I had gone around to several big chicken farms in Iowa and and quickly saw that okay this doesn't really transfer at all you know mm. it's not tropical for one and they do things they have four million or ten million uh, chicken farm with four employees you know? whoa yeah and it's like okay it's all automated we're not going to do this right. over there so I actually was able to learn more uh, from appropriate models in Thailand than than in Laos but mm. but so long story short it's kind of interesting now that we have COVID that. Um, you know, 20 something years ago, we had the bird flu outbreak mm. in Asia and that shut the borders down to any poultry products. Right. And so I used to, you know, I used to go to the hatchery in Thailand and get day old chicks and put them in the back of my truck and, and bring them into mm. Laos. So I would, you know, traffic chicks from <laughs> Thailand back into Laos and, uh, and then raise them out to, uh, to sell. And then they closed the borders, So we couldn't do that anymore. Right. And, and we were just waiting for the borders to open back up to the poultry products and they wouldn't open up. Of course, all the other people were doing it illegally, but we couldn't do that. And so, um, so that started to the wheels turning in my head. What else can we do here that would give us a wider reach with people um, you know, you do chickens, you work with a few people, but if you do something that you could plant, you could potentially work with everybody in a right. village. And so uh, the soybeans interested me, but what I discovered about soybeans was that it didn't really make sense to go up in the mountains where my target people group lived to plant them when you could plant them right next to town. Right. And so I was looking for something that made sense to plant up into the, in the mountains, mm -hmm. something that fetched a high enough price that would make it worthwhile, you know, just... Um, you know, business-wise, make it worthwhile to drive up there and buy it from the farmers and make it worth their while, too, that once they got paid, it would actually, you know, improve their lives instead of just be on the same level as their subsistence farming crops. And so I did not come to that thinking, oh, I love coffee. I want to do coffee. And how can I do coffee? I was thinking, how can I uh, promote some kind of agricultural crop to people that will give me access and will actually be helpful for the people? Mm. And, and then I considered different crops that fit that bill and somebody suggested coffee to me and it checked all the boxes pretty much. And, uh, and so the more I looked into it, the more it seemed like a good fit. And so I, long story short, I started a coffee company in Northern Laos. We're the first, you know, uh, sustained coffee effort in the North of Laos. And we were promoting coffee as a business rather than an NGO in Northern Laos and ended up planting coffee with more than 800 different families in uh, wow. four districts of the one province where we lived. And, uh, yeah. Wow. So we give them the coffee trees, uh, teach them how to grow it. When it came time to harvest, we'd purchase their crop back from them. So same model as the soybean industry, yeah. but 
adapted. So. Yeah, but instead of making animal feed, we made fresh roasted coffee yeah. beans. <laughs> so from chickens to coffee, how the gospel was advanced <laughs> through Laos. You know, the interesting thing is that um, pretty much all of the coffee farmers there used to plant opium. Mm. And so we actually made a video called From Opium Beans, Opium Poppies to Coffee Beans, um, because that was the, the transition that these farmers made. Of course, we didn't put it into opium production. The government had done that, but it drove the people into poverty. And so coffee helped them to begin to climb that, you know, make that climb out of poverty. And it also gave us access to, you know, build relationships, share the gospel. Absolutely. Like You're walking in to, in, in to be able to, you know, give them a skill that is going to provide for their family in, in, a, in a greater way that clearly the government was unwilling to do. Um, yeah, their ears are going to be a bit more open, I would yeah. assume. Yeah. So so going from opium to coffee, I'm intrigued by that. What? Uh, how did you, I mean, what were the conversations? Like, how would you convince someone? <laughs> I mean, if this is a government thing, right? I, I don't know what the, I don't know how people in Laos look at the government as far as, oh, well, maybe there's, I, I can't go against the government or maybe there's protection there. But how would you convince these opium farmers that it's better for you and your family and long-term generationally to move away from that and move into growing coffee. Yeah, well, the um, we really only had to do half of that. The government was already putting an end to opium production. Oh, so we okay. didn't really have to talk people out of opium. Um, they The government was already doing that. They just didn't give them really any good replacement options. And okay. so they were some coming to subsistence level farming cash crops like or subsistence level crops of like corn and uh, rice, upland rice and Job's tears right. enough to live on basically. Um, and so, you know, they, they made better money when they sold opium, but when the government said you can't do that anymore, they just kind of made enough to survive. Right. And so coffee gave them the ability to, you know, make above what they needed. And so they could begin to, you know, send their children to schools, you know, send their sick to the hospital and things like that. So wow. it, it was still a challenge though. Um, oh, yeah. Because the biggest, the biggest challenge was that, you know, no one in the North of Laos had seen coffee production, sustainable coffee production before. And so, uh, it was a new concept. So you don't plant coffee trees out in the sun like you do rice. And so they were accustomed to cutting down forest and planting rice in the full sun. And that's not what we wanted them to do with coffee. They need to plant coffee in the shade. And so it was very frustrating and, and a challenge to get people to understand that it's good to plant this in the shade because it, it wasn't intuitive. You know, obviously everything grows better in the sun. You right. Know? And so, and, and then the other aspect of that was, you know, are you really going to buy this from us? You know, we've, um, we've been lied to so many times. Right, Government people, level. Chinese traders, other Lao business people would come through and say, here, plant this when it comes to harvest, I'll come back and buy it and then never show up or come back and give them a price, you know, pennies on the dollar of what they promised. Right. And so they assumed that we were probably, you know, trying to trick them for our own benefit. And, uh, you know, I was very happy that when it came time to, to harvest coffee, we actually paid more than triple what we originally promised. Really? And so it was kind of opposite. And so, um, the, another challenge with coffee was once you plant, it, it takes three years before you can have your first really good harvest. Oh, really? I didn't and, know that. Yeah. And so, you know, that they're not accustomed to that either. They're accustomed to annual crops where you plant it in the spring, harvest it in the fall and you get paid. And to think that far in advance, you know, a lot of people who are in poverty, they don't have the luxury of planning three years in advance. Right. And so that was actually one of the biggest challenges was saying, you know, cause they got to eat, you know, and, and so if I'm going to take this piece of land, I can plant rice eat this year or I can plant coffee, but I have to wait three years. And so in long term, it definitely helped them. But the more 
you know, the more poor you are, the, the higher risk adverse you are too. Mm. And so those were some of the challenges that we faced in promoting coffee. So talk to me a little bit about the gospel advancement part of that. How did, how, how did this aspect of positively affecting families and the economy, what, what doors did that open for you to advance the gospel and, and teach about Jesus to these people that maybe had never heard? I mean, you just talked about unreached, that, that yeah. ears, have, ears that have never heard yet. Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you what, uh, Jr. We had um, I had in my mind this ideal scenario that you know we hadn't seen. It was a, it was a vision. It was a dream. It was like this is our plan of what we want to see happen. And you know, just because it's never happened before, that didn't bother us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're like, let's right. do this. You know? <laughs> and so, um, and so. It didn't kind of play out like I had thought it would or hoped it would. You know, I hope that we're going to plant coffee with these farmers. We're going to train up uh, Christian disciples to be our coffee promoters out in the villages. They're going to engage in the evangelism and church planting process. And then, you know, we're going to plant churches among these coffee farmers. And that happened a little bit, but not as much as I wanted it to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we were praying for and targeting one particular unreached tribe in Laos, but we were planting coffee with about four or five. And uh, the, our, our target tribe was only a smaller percentage of the coffee growers. But what happened is um, after we started, you know, just meeting the Mian people that we were targeting and in their community, we all of a sudden God brought us many opportunities to share the gospel with Mian people, but they weren't coffee farmers. Mm. And initially I was like, no, we need to work with the coffee farmers. But then after time started to go by and we kept getting more and more opportunities with these men people, you know, I kind of thought, wait, we can't be snobs. You know, here God has given us an opportunity to work with these people. We can't say you're not a coffee farmer, so I'm not going to share the gospel with you. And so we, I just said, who cares if they're not coffee gurus? Let's just go for it. Let's just start, you know, teaching the gospel. And that's when things really started to take off. And so we actually saw more spiritual fruit among people who weren't coffee growers because they lived at elevations not high enough to plant coffee than we did among our coffee growers. And at first that bothered me, but later on it didn't bother me at all. Mm. So I figured, you know, God has all those things worked out. We're still doing good with coffee. Some of the me and people are planting coffee. Some of the coffee planters have heard the gospel. or A lot of them have heard the gospel. Some have come to the Lord. Um, and that's good. We praise God for that. Right. Uh, but our biggest, you know, fruit that God gave us was not among the coffee growers. And, oh. and we were okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, still, it still gave us a reason for being there. It still uh, allowed us to help people and show God's love. And uh, it still, you know, did what we needed it to do in order to extend God's kingdom. Yeah. So fast forward a little bit to today. Yeah. You know, you're back here in the States um, and you are, um, we're sitting in your coffee roastery. Yeah. uh, For lack of better, I mean, mean, we're, I mean, we're drinking uh, some of the, some of the best coffee I've ever, ever had. uh, And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here going, how do you say, can I excuse myself from the podcast to have more coffee? So, <laughs> but we're sitting here now, fast forward a little bit. What does ministry look like today? You know, with you yeah. here in the States and what, and, and how has the coffee expanded um, beyond what just going into Laos and teaching uh, planting and harvesting tech techniques? Yeah. Yeah. So when we transitioned to the States um, about five years ago now, um, we had um, the biggest reason, by the way, that we decided to transition to the states was that our children's education situation was such that they uh, were not going to be prepared, and their age was such that we felt like if we're going to shift things, it better be better to do it now than right. than when they're teenagers. Um, and so, but 
the Mian tribe that we had been working with when I first went to Laos um, back in 2001, you know, they were less than or around 1% believers. Um, and because of many things that God did, multiplying believers and disciples among the Mian, the, they had actually grown to more than 8%. And so technically they were beyond the threshold of being considered reached. Uh, but when we moved back to the States, we kind of transitioned our ministry focus to broader a broader you know, region being all of Southeast Asia. And Southeast Asia is the region of the world that's basically south of China and east of India. Mm-hmm. And so the Indochina Peninsula, Indonesia, and all that. And there's more than 700 unreached people groups. Wow. And so our vision became then to, you know, what can we do to coordinate efforts to, you know, multiply disciples and churches among unreached people groups, all the unreached people groups of Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And so um, we named this uh, vision Mekong Multiply. Uh, Mekong is the major river that flows right. through into China Peninsula, and multiply has just been a principle of multiplication. You know, uh, be fruitful, and multiply. You True. know, God said right. in the Bible, and uh, in terms of disciples, that's what we want to see happen. And so that's why we named our ministry that. And um, and so um, the the biggest opportunity we've had uh, has been uh, still in the country of Laos, actually. Mm. And so there are uh, a bunch of um, what are called unengaged, unreached people groups that remain in the country of Laos, most of whom, you know, Lao people even hadn't even heard of, you know. Right. They were always lumped together with other tribes, uh, bigger tribes, and not even known to exist. Wow. Um, and so, in fact, we actually had a list of 58 of these groups to begin with. Right. And, and we weren't confident in the data. And so when we did a survey, we... I thought the number would decrease, figuring you know, some of these you know, are reached already, right. some of these don't exist, some of these are actually this other group, and that we'd end up with like 35 or something. Right. But the, the list mushroomed because we kept discovering more and more of these groups that had been previously lumped together with bigger groups. And so we actually had 158 groups that we found, wow. and we're able to confirm 96 of those. And, um, and so the vision you know, just kind of grew, okay, what's it going to take then to mobilize uh, efforts to reach all these groups. And so immediately, you know, recognized that it wasn't going to be expatriate or foreign missionaries from the West, like right. America, exactly. to go to all these places. Sure. We need to mobilize the national Christians to become missionaries to the other tribes within their own country. And so anyways, that's the that's kind of the story yeah. of the Final 58 project that Make Home Multiply is involved with in Laos. Um, and, uh, and so then Kingdom Bean Coffee, we started a few years ago, um, and that was to kind of, you know, make a bridge between the two. Right. And so here at Kingdom Bean Coffee here in Louisville, I import coffee from my former coffee company in Laos, as well as from other mission works around the world that also use coffee to reach people and to do ministry. And, uh, and so we're supporting coffee as missions in, right. in that way by sourcing it and purchasing coffee from mission works. But we also support the Mekong Multiply ministry from our profits as mm. well. Uh, and so it kind of is the kingdom being coffee roastery is involved in missions on, on both ends. Right. Right. And so, so you're now, you're now back here in the States, like you've just said, and that you've taken your coffee part of advancing the gospel from one country and one group uh, to m- multiple groups there in Laos, but now you're importing it from all these other places. Are all yeah. are all the places that you import coffee are are they are they all directly linked to some sort of ministry or gospel advancement as well? Um, yes. Well, we have like a, our decaf coffee is just a generic decaf. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, it. Uh, I don't think there's a, a direct connection there, um, but but 
most all of our coffees are directly related to Christian missions in one way or the other. In right. some situations, they are national believers who are raising coffee, and it's helping to support them as they serve the Lord and, and are a witness in their home countries. In other cases, there's unreached peoples who grow the coffee, and the people who are buying the coffee are using that to access them and to help them and to you know share the gospel with them. Mm. So, for example, like in uh, you know our Latin American coffees tend to be more of the the situation where these are believers that are growing the coffee who are involved in church and ministry. Um, excuse me, but uh, like in our Sumatra coffee, it's definitely a Muslim group that is raising the, uh, this coffee, and it's we have Christian workers who are trying to reach this Muslim group, and, and one way they can access them is by buying their coffee from them. Wow. So yeah. churches, uh, if you're listening to this, the, the, the two things you can do to absolutely support uh, and to be a, a intentional with your missions, even all the way down to the smallest level, is is just take an audit of where you buy your coffee. Uh, I, I know that um, several churches that I go in and, and coach, that there's always it's either the red can or the blue can, um, <laughs> yeah. which is grotesque coffee, by the way. I'm, I'm surprised <laughs> it's even labeled coffee. But what you can do is you can actually order coffee from Kingdom Bean. They will roast it. Um, they will even grind it and uh, ship it to you. And you can put that in your church and to be able to show that we are thinking about missions all the way down to where we buy our coffee from. And the second yeah. one is this, buy it for yourself, not just for the church, but buy it and put it in your house. Uh, take a few bags, uh, buy them, have them have them shipped, sh- shipped to you, and you personally are a part of advancing the kingdom, uh, even all the way from uh, from your house. And you're doing that through making sure that there is sustainable sales of the coffee to these individuals so that they can either uh, continue to fuel churches or fuel the workers that are trying to reach people that don't know Jesus yet. I mean, that to me, that's that seems like the top two things that anybody listening can do that right off the bat. I'm glad that you said both individually and as a church, you know, um, I think one of the things that is helpful for us as Christians to do is to take an inventory of where all our money goes. You know, right. and there's so many things that we buy in our house right. and churches buy on their, you know, office supplies budget or just church supplies budget that really is going to support these huge corporations and stuff that not, don't always necessarily promote, you know, a uh, Christian worldview or Christian values like we, we believe in. And, uh, you know, how much better it is to take a portion of money that we're spending anyway mm-hmm. and, and spend it to spend it on things that are actually helping to expand God's kingdom around the world and among the unreached. So wow. thank yeah. you for saying that. So yeah, no problem. Let me plug it for, since you kind of did the plug there. Let me give you the our website is kingdommeancoffee.com. So anybody can go to kingdommeancoffee.com and, and place an order. You get three bags or more as free shipping. And we'll ship it to you. And personal experience on multiple accounts. The church that we go to here in Louisville, as well as what's in my mug right now, uh, Kingdom Bean is fantastic coffee. Love it. Couldn't recommend it more. So let's end with this. Let's let's talk about the book. You yeah. you have spent, you, we just talked about the the years you've spent in Laos and what's going on. And then, and then now you've got a book coming out. What, what, what prompted writing a book? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I've, missionary books and biographies have always meant so much to me, you know, and really helped me a lot when I was considering, you know, was the Lord calling me to become a missionary and reading the testimonies and the stories of, of uh, both missionaries and uh, churches around the world that were planted of different national believers and, and the testimonies of things that God did definitely impacted me a lot. And so I, I really felt that, 
um, after living full time for 15 years and, you know, in and out of Laos for the past quarter century almost, um, that, you know, I had some stories to tell. Right. And uh, to be honest, uh, after moving here and meeting people, you know, you'll hear missionaries say all the time, you know, no one really wants to hear our stories. You know, right. <laughs> I can write newsletters and and uh, <laughs> maybe somebody reads them. But um, but you write a book and it's like even since this book has come out, people have been reading some of these stories that, you know, they never would have heard otherwise. Mm hmm. And uh, so part of it was um, just to be able to tell some of the stories of things that God has done that I've been able to witness um, that I think people will be blessed by or inspired by or even challenged by. Right. And uh, that's one way to get those stories out there when, um, you know, you find it difficult to, to find an avenue for sharing stories like that. Right. I mean, you've got the, you've got the ever-present uh um, threat of someone finding out who, what is, what is going on, and and then the workers seeing persecution from that, and so there's always this trepidation or fear of how do I tell this story, which is why you operate under a pen name. But you, and I know your heart as well. There's so many stories in your book. I've I've seen I've seen the stories shared on so on social media that of of local national workers and what they're doing, mm-hmm. and in order to tell those stories, you you have to provide some sort of anonymity for yes, that yeah. uh, and things like that. So I know the book's not all about what you've done, right? right? Right. The book is about what God has done and, and growing his kingdom, growing his family by national workers right. there in Laos as well. So here's what I'd like to do. Uh-huh. I didn't, I didn't tell you this, okay. uh, but on my notes that I had planned out for the summer calendar, um, I had planned out some giveaways. So I, I'm going to buy three books. Okay. Great. Uh, one for me and two for our listeners. So if you're listening to this podcast, here's what you do. If you want this brand new book called The Faith Road uh, by Elliot Branch, I've been practicing that name all the way over here because I don't want to say his real name on the air like (laughs) we've talked about. So if you would like one of these books, here's what you got to do to get it. It's easy. Go on iTunes and leave us a rate and review, five-star rating, and then give us a review and then send me an email. Um, I've got a snapshot of our current reviews and rating now. Uh, just go online and leave us a positive review, uh, rate and review on iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Send me an email at jr at seatstostreets.com. That's jr at seatstostreets.com, letting me know that you've just rated and reviewed the, uh, the podcast, and I will ship you one of the two copies I have to give away of The Faith Road. So go ahead and do that. I'd love to have it. Um, I'd love to get that to you, and I can't wait to read it as well. So, Elliot, is there any other parting comments or uh, well wishes that you'd like to give to any sort of pastor, pastors or church staff that's listening? Well, yeah. First, I'd like to say that, you know, the title of the book, The Faith Road, is actually a title of the uh, one of the chapters in the book. And, and the idea of The Faith Road is that we... We see God act when we step out in faith. Right. Um, you know, sometimes God acts in spite of us. Sometimes he acts through us. Um, but it's hard to see the extraordinary when we only rely upon ourselves and our own wisdom, our own resources, our own, you know, logic and, you know, uh, the things that we have at our own disposal. But when we step out in faith, you know, it gives God the opportunity to do the extraordinary and to see, you know, miracles, to see things that wouldn't otherwise happen that we could only point to God and say, that was you, God, that wasn't mm-hmm. me. Right. And, uh, and so I think the book is filled with stories like that. Um, not about how great we are as people, uh, whether that's me as a, as a, an American or our national partners, but how great God is um, and stories of people who are stepping out in faith. And I think that, 
you know, sometimes people might read a book like this and think, oh, yeah, sure, all that makes sense for a place like Laos on the other side of the world right. and a culture that's totally different. Uh, but I, I really think that faith works anywhere. And uh, when we step out in faith and do things because of faith, relying upon God, uh, we can see you know some amazing things happen. And so I, I really pray and hope that this will be both a challenge and an encouragement to pastors, to anybody here who has a heart for God and wants to see you know God do things in their own life, but in other people's lives or in the communities, uh, to step out in faith right. you know, and say, Lord, what would you have me do? And I don't know how it's all going to happen, but I'm going to step out. Wow. And so hopefully it'll encourage people to do that. Absolutely. And pastors, you have an Elliott branch in your church right now. You may not know them. You may not know their name, but they are there. And I'd love to help you discover them and equip them to be able to follow God's call to the mission field or even into the ministry, whatever that, whatever that looks like. So we hope that you're encouraged and we hope that everything we've talked about today allows you to take your people from Sunday morning seats to local and global streets. We'll see you next time. You have been listening to the Seats to Streets podcast, a conversation centered around moving your people from Sunday morning seats to local and global streets. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.